Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Welcome to another BritFlix.com podcast. My name is Stuart Wright and this is the FrightFest 2019 preview series. And today's guest is Justin Edgar. Hello, Justin. Hi there. How the hell are you? Very good indeed, thank you. Good Not man, good bad. man. Uh, now we've come to talk about your film that's playing at FrightFest, that film being Stalked. And before <laughs> we go into any other detail and about you and the film... Um, do you want to give the uh, the listener a brief synopsis to what Stalk's all about? Okay, so Stalked is about uh, a young woman called Sam, who is a um, Royal Marine commando. Uh, mm-hmm. She's a single mum, and she lives on uh, a barracks, army barracks, uh, with her baby, who's uh, only about four months old. Right. And um, her baby gets sick. She doesn't have a support system around her. She has no mum or dad or friends or anything like that. The barracks is kind of deserted for the weekend. And she has to go out and get some medicine for the baby. And she makes a terrible choice, which is to leave the baby home alone while she goes out. Pops out literally to the chemist for five minutes to get this medicine come back. Um, While she is out, she is kidnapped by somebody she can't see. And she's taken to a place which she finds out is a military factory, a military facility and kind of produces military hardware, armoured plating uh, for tanks, things like that. Um, and what she comes to understand is she is being stalked in this in this environment by an unseen foe, somebody she can't see. And uh, that's the pitch. To, to tell you, say too much more about it might give a little bit uh, too much away. But to cut a long story short, she has to use her military skills in order to fight back against this unseen foe and to get back to her baby. Brilliant, brilliant. Uh, uh, now, we're going to put a link in the show notes so people can get more details as to time and place and stuff. Um, so we don't have to sort of go over that one. Um, now, before we talk in more detail about the film, um, as it's the 20th anniversary of Fright Fest, I'm asking everybody to give me their memory of their... And I'm, I, I started off with 20th birthday, but actually, when I think about it, I mean, it can be the 20th birthday if that's a memorable occasion for you. But just thinking about a memory from your 20th year... Um, that springs to mind when I ask that question? What, what, what for you pops up? 
Well, do you know what? My 20th year, I'm, I'm 48 now. Mm. So uh, my 20th year was uh, began in August 1991. And 1991 was an amazing year for films. You know, I had some, uh, some classic films released in, in that year. You know, genre films like Terminator 2. I remember, I think, going to see that on my 20th birthday. Wow. Um, yeah, it was brilliant. Uh, Barton Fink, you know, the great Coen Brothers film, Fisher King. Um, Silence of the Lambs, you know, which funnily enough is quite a touchstone for Unseen. You know, I think it's one of the great thrillers and has some great suspense moments. It's a real textbook of how to make suspense cinema. Mm. Uh, Edward Scissorhands, you know. Uh, so it was, it was a good year for film. And that was the year when I, I packed up my job at the Inland Revenue in Birmingham, where I was working as a, as a revenue assistant and decided I was going to do a film course and headed down to my local college and um, and, and did a BTEC in media. And that was how I started making films um so my 20th year i've got a lot of good memories of it you know um really really good yeah, good memories went to reading festival saw nirvana who were way down the bill they were below ned's atomic dustbin on the bill funny enough you know they, so, they were they were below chapter house my friend they were yeah. i was i was stood in the field with you oh brilliant <laughs> fantastic you must be a similar age to me then. yeah 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 we're, we're, we're within 12 months of each other yes no indeed right. it was uh Happy memories. I was on memory lane with you there for a second, tell yeah. you. Say that for nothing. <laughs> it, it was a great, great reading, actually. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. All sorts of reasons. So that was my 20th year. It's a good, it's a good memory. And, and you, you had loads of great films. Um, uh, Les Amont du Pont Neuf, you know, great Leo Carax film that came out. That made a big impact on me. You know, brilliant sequence of them going in the speedboat down the Thames with fireworks going off on Bastille Day. Great, you know, great moments of cinema. So... So I tend to remember years cinematically, but that was a, gr- a good year for cinema, I think. Yeah. Give, given, given, given you were in Brum, did you go to the Hummingbird and watch Nirvana later that year? <laughs> Funnily enough, I, I, I didn't go to that gig, but I, I did uh, go to a lot of gigs at the Hummingbird. Very familiar with the sticky floor at the Hummingbird, you know, yeah. the uh, walk, walking around. Uh, and it was a bit of a workout, actually, because your feet stuck to the floor so badly, you know, you'd have to sort of pull them off the... Uh, well, yeah, no, because I, I, weirdly, in a small world that is doing a podcast with complete strangers when you start off, I went. To, I started university in 91 in Birmingham. Oh, how funny. There you go. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, I, that, was a, that was a fantastic year. So I saw the Fisher King in, in Birmingham. Uh, yeah. What else did I see about what that year? I'm trying to think what I saw that year. Uh, was True Romance that year? Uh, True Romance was, was a bit later, I think. Was that 92 93? Oh, 93, yeah, of course, yeah. 92 was yeah. Reservoir Dogs, wasn't it? So, it was, yeah, because we're talking pre, pre Tarantino. I mean, when Tarantino hit, I was I was a film student when Tarantino hit, as you would have been as well, you know. And it was yeah, a massive yeah, yeah. deal, wasn't it? You know, and um, you had like, uh, well, I mean, Reservoir Dogs. I saw at the Aston Triangle in Birmingham in Aston. Oh, yes, Aston Triangle. Yeah. Happy days. Yeah, which, By Plastic yeah. Fancy Records. Exactly, and the Plastic Fancy. But sadly, uh, the Triangle is now a car park. That makes me so, sad. But then, I mean, the yeah. last time I went to Birmingham, I didn't recognise the bloody place. Yeah, yeah, it'll be great when they finish it. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> Didn't they say that about 1967? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a bizarre old place, but uh, no, it's, it's getting better. We've got some good cinemas there. You know, a good friend Tom's got the electric cinema there. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, cool. You know, and you've got the everyman there now as well. And uh, it's always been a, a well-served town in terms of uh, films and cinemas. No, so, I, did, no I, had a gr- I had a great time. Well, look, we'll, we, we could go down memory lane for, for all, all the while, but let's... <laughs> let's, let's um, Let's get on to your film, because that's what people have come to listen to. Um, so, Stoked, you wrote and directed it, so let's start at the beginning of that process as a filmmaker. What, what for you, was was the kernel of an idea, was the 
was the image you saw, was the was the newspaper report you read that says, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to have a, four, a, a, a single parent commando isolated, being chased by some invisible force. Where does that idea start for you? Right. Well, I mean, spoiler alert first up, um, because I started with the science stuff on this. I, I was interested, you know, I, I, I kind of a bit of a geek and I, I like to look up um, things like things like this on the Internet. And I, there's all this conspiracy theory on the Internet about the military developing these um, they're called stealth suits or quantum stealth suits. If you Google it, you know, you come up with a load of strange videos on YouTube. And um, is this basically the equivalent of what we with those planes that we know of that can where they disappear off radar but obviously a suit yeah. that would do it in real life yeah absolutely and um, in the film it's a powered suit but it, what they're doing in real life is they're developing these things which will re refract refract light in a certain way which will um render the wearer invisible um, Jesus. yeah and this is really clever stuff and it's not science fiction you know there's a 60 minutes for example you can watch on youtube about this that's been done mm. Not that 60 Minutes is a great arbiter of, uh, you know, reality and truth. Um, in the era of <laughs> I get your point, though. I get your point. But, but, you know, it has, yeah, and they, they, you know, they've got military types on there who they interview and say, yeah, this, this is really happening. We're working on this. And there's some great footage. There's an amazing piece of footage. I think, I believe it's from Afghanistan, which is combat footage of a guy, uh, a soldier, military uh, personnel from the US. He's running in front of a tank and you can't see him until he, runs in front of the tank and then you can see him for a bit and then he disappears again and they think he might be wearing the conspiracy theorists believe he might be wearing one of these stealth suits one of these quantum stealth suits and that we haven't been told about it because it's all top secret for obvious reasons it gives uh you know the, the combatant a um a serious advantage over their uh, over their enemy so they don't want people to know about it so maybe these things do exist and um that's what the film uh hinges it's, on. The, it's the ultimate in emperor's new clothes isn't it imagine going to battle thinking you're invisible and everyone's going the fuck's he yeah. what that's for oh yeah yeah <laughs> i mean it's pretty cool and uh you know if you think you can make tank could you make tanks invisible you know could you make um obviously you can make stealth stealth bombers invisible on mm. radar and it's um it's the same principle so it's kind of uh science fiction based in a little bit of so you so you went okay how can i make a film that, that that you that maybe uses what this is all about. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cool. So where so, so where did you where, so from that sort of because obviously as uh, for the lay person listening, you know, ideas are ten a penny, aren't they? So you go, I want to make a film about something with a stealth suit. That's not a story, is it? So yeah. how, how did you go from that idea to then somehow come right. up with the nugget that became the story? Right. Well, I wanted to do a, I wanted to do a genre film, a mm -hmm. pure genre film. <laughs> so that was kind of a starting point for it. Yeah. And um, and I thought, well, sorry, my baby's like kicking I, off. Here. I can tell. I can tell. Hello. This is the Brickflix Fryfest preview series 2019. Sorry about that. It's all right. No, these the real world yeah. still keeps turning. We're on a podcast. <laughs> so yeah, I, want, I wanted to do a genre film. Yeah, and I, I believe we're living in a, a golden era of genre filmmaking. You know, and um, it's one genre which is really working at the box office and working commercially as well. You know, and that, these films are actually getting seen and seen by people in cinemas, which was important to me. You know, because I, I like to think people are going to see my films in cinemas. 
And, um, you know, if you look at the, the Bloomhouse uh, kind of model and uh, the amazing films that are coming out of, uh, of the States at the moment, um, it's, it's a great era for, uh, for suspense films. And I realised that those films have a pretty strict formula, really. You know, look at a film like Don't Breathe, for instance, you know, and it's about 25 minutes until they get into the blind guy's house, you know, or something like that. And this is a 85 minute long film. So you've got 25 minutes where you set up the character and you invest in them. And then then the rest of the film um, is, is a suspense thriller. And, and, and I think this is where Jason Bloom and his cohorts are smart, is that they... They know that you have to invest in the character. That's how suspense thrillers work, you know, and, and um, going back through the history of them, you know, right, right back to Hitchcock, etc. That's what he always did as well. So so I knew I'd have to put my character in a situation which where she was, um, uh, you know, a life and death situation, essentially, because she couldn't leave her, her baby uh, for this amount of time. So, uh, so I came up with this idea. I just had a baby. So it's classic low budget filmmaking, you know, and you would have to um, use what I'd got. So uh, I had I had a four month baby kicking around the house and uh, thought, well, I could put her in the film. And um, uh, I knew that I would have to do this with actors who, you know, hadn't done that much before, but were really good actors. So uh, cast a bit of a net out. I knew I wouldn't have loads of facilities or ability to do it. So I um, reached out to uh, a friend who is a location manager, asked him if he knew any good locations. And he said, I've got just the place, which is this pretty much deserted factory in Warwickshire where, um, you know, you could come and film and, and they're very film friendly. They will like having you there and it, it'll be free as well. So so those were those were my kind of when I started writing the script. Those were the elements in the building blocks that I had um, and I certainly knew what I wanted to do. So I started writing the script. I'm fairly disciplined as a writer these days, at least. And what I will do is set myself a target. So I thought, right, I've got making a suspense thriller in the Bloomhouse mould. I've got um, got to set up the character's plight at the beginning. I've got to um, base it pretty much all in this in this factory space, um, which is a location I've got. And I know that I have limited resources and facilities in terms of visual effects, CGI's, mm. um, etc., so I just uh, went for it and uh, sat down and said, I'm going to write five pages of this a day for two weeks. I read the script for A Quiet Place, which if anybody gets a chance to do, you can download it for free on the Internet. And it's a great script. It's only about 60 pages long. So I thought, right, OK, in 12 days, I'm going to have a 60 page script. Uh, and that's what I did. So I wrote the script in two weeks and uh, using kind of things I was interested in anyway, like, you know, this idea of the quantum stealth suit and uh, and that. And of course, as a low budget conceit, it, it, it works because you don't really see the bad guy for much of the film. You know, he's invisible. So yeah, yeah, yeah. You've you've kind of an invisible monster is a is a, is a good monster to have. I mean, it's what we do with monsters we're meant to be able to see is we hide them from the viewer as much as we can until we have to. So invisibility, as it were, is the perfect is is is, is only achieving the same end, isn't it? Yeah, and I was. I, I, Really interested in this idea of, you know, film is a visual medium, obviously, and, and um, a lot of it is about scopophilia, you know, the fetish of looking, as I'm sure you know, as a filmmaker yourself. You know, and, um, I thought this was interesting, you know, and what emerged as I was writing the script in those 12 days was <clears throat> this idea of men and women, you know, and the male look and uh, scopophilia and voyeurism, you know, and the fact yeah. that he has this young woman 
he captures, I mean, he captures other young women as well and quite, kind of enjoys playing cat and mouse and enjoys the power he has over these women because he's a guy who has quite low status himself and it's his way of sort of, it's all about power. It's not so much a sexual thing even, it's just about the, the power he has over them. Um, so that that was interesting, you know, and that, that enabled it's me the, to... It's the ultimate male gaze, isn't it, then, I suppose? It, it is, yeah. And what's interesting in this film is there's kind of a power play because at some point, again, not to give too much away, but there's a there's a point at which that that switches, you know, and she she realizes that she can see him, and uh, that's how she she fights back. Um, so there, there's a lot of playing with that idea, you know, which again is inherent in a lot of horror and suspense cinema, the idea of of the male gaze, you know, and of voyeurism, you know, going back mm. to things like Peeping Tom, etc. Yeah. Um, and, and a lot of Hitchcock stuff. I mean, of course, yeah, he was a master of it. Yeah, yeah, and and it was one of his big preoccupations, you know. Yes, indeed. So, no, it wasn't. It yeah. wasn't just for cinema, was it? <laughs> no, no, absolutely. You know, he he enjoyed um, torch, torturing Tippy Hedren. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As we now know. Yeah. So uh, you know, we know a lot about that. So in this era, you know, the post Me Too era and having just had a daughter as well, you know, so being interested in seeing the world from a female perspective, you know, I felt it was a, it, it was a prescient film to make. And, and what that did as well, because the script is one thing, but then when you're trying to bring it to life, and I always sort of knew that with this film, it really helped me work with the actor, you know, especially uh, lead actor, um, Rebecca, because she, um, uh, she was able to really get into the, this idea, you know, and we, we worked a lot, on, on the themes and as well as the character, obviously you do all the characters and background and stuff, but a lot about the themes and thought a lot about what we were doing here, you know, and um, there were some interesting moments to do with that on set. Um, I mean, there's a moment in the film, again, it's just a spoil, terrible spoiler alert, but there's a moment where she dons the suit, you know, and I was saying to enjoy that power, you know, enjoy that power you've got. You, yeah. Nobody else can see you, you know, and, um, it becomes less about men and women and more about power then, and, and that became interesting. So. Okay, okay. So, so given given you've given you've you've created this this first draft of the screenplay in two weeks, and given the finished film that we've got now, uh, which I should I should say that I've not seen the film yet, so I'm doing this interview blind. But it means I can't spoil. That's the, that's my <laughs> security blanket. Is I can't be. A, I'm only asking questions. Um, yeah. So it's not it's not from a point of view of knowledge. I'm genuinely just asking questions in from a curiosity point of view. Um, yeah. Is that so? The journey you made from when you finished that draft in two weeks to the the finished film you've got now. What what began? What what's the mainstay of that first draft, and what and what's a sort of wild deviation from that original idea that you've ended up with? Um, it's it's pretty much as per that first draft, actually. What we did. You're showing I, off now, Justin. Well, <laughs> I don't know about that because I'll, I'll qualify all that because, well, we you know we we had the first draft. We had yeah. this, uh, you know, I think it was about sixty-eight pages or something. Right. There's a lot of action in the film, so you know that it's sometimes hard to use the page a minute rule. You know, when you mm. when you're uh, writing an action screenplay, and I'd never written a script quite like this before. But there's not loads of dialogue in it. And when we when we shot it, and this was always a concern because we knew we'd have to deliver, you know, an eighty-two minute at least film for yeah. for sales. We had a sales agent from the start, and they were very useful in giving feedback and telling us what was working in the market, you know. So because mm. um, uh, we didn't want to make a film that nobody was going to see, you know, make a genre film, people you want people to see it. Of course. So um, so we, we we got the film and uh, we shot it, you know, we shot the film. Um, well, I should, I, I'll talk you through the process of, of, of no, how, we, how we did it before I get to my point, you know, about, about 
not being such a smart ass about writing the script. <laughs> um, but we, so we, we cast a film and cast it through friends, actually, you know, so there were a couple of actors I'd worked with before who were mates and then the mates of mates. So we didn't do such a thing as, um, as casting really, you know, we auditioned the, the lead actors who I didn't know, you know, the, the people who played the main roles in the film, particularly Rebecca, you know, um, but they only saw about three or four people, you know, I didn't see loads of people because they were recommended by friends and, you know, the friends were trusted and, and um, good arbiters of who was uh, good at good and bad at acting, you know, and might be good for the role. Yeah. And we were pretty lucky, you know, I think we were lucky to get, get the people we did and to find them quite quickly. So, after that, we had um, uh, we we had a shoot. You know, the shoot was probably uh, about seven days. The film was privately financed, you know, so we didn't have to worry about money. So, the, but the initial shoot was seven days, and we had to do it in blocks for various reasons. Had all the usual stuff that happens on low budget films. The actor, the lead actor, got ill, so we had to reschedule and things like that. But ultimately, we had a cut of the film anyway. Yeah, um, it was a pretty pretty crazy shoot, but you know, I love craziness, you know, and it was used to it as as a, as a lot. Of, you know, low budget filmmakers are, you know, and, and you, you know how to get stuff done. So we got it done. Uh, and then we had a 60 minute cut of the film. <laughs> so we thought, oh, shit, what are we going to do now? We've got um, a 60 minute film. It's not long enough. And um, again, it was going back to that. It's difficult to you know, say on an action film, page a minute stuff, you know. Yeah. Um, so we uh, so we thought, oh, we'll shoot more stuff. And that's what we did. And I felt like there wasn't enough really at the beginning of the film setting up her character and doing that Bloomhouse stuff you know of establishing the character's plight and making the audience invest in in her so I went back and um, just filmed a lot more about her situation as a single mum and put stuff in about the ex-boyfriend and stuff like that but I think it really helps you know and um, and then um, so that was a day of shooting and, and then we um, we came back we still had the film was a bit too short uh, but we took it to AFM as a promo reel, and um, the the buyer's feedback was they wanted more fights in it. Okay. So we, we went back and filmed some more fights, which was good fun. Obviously, it's always good fun filming fights and stuff. But we also wanted to just tidy up a few bits that we weren't happy with as well. So we got the opportunity to do that and uh, and went back and did another day. So the whole thing in the end was... So what, what I liked about the process, because when I've done films before, you know, I've done my main shoot and, and then I've come back afterwards and maybe done a day of pickups or something like that. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, that sound, that, what you've described doesn't <laughs> sound atypical, whereas that what you just said now is your general thing, isn't it? It's like, oh, we, need, we need a little bit, of, we need a detail here and a detail there, not can we have more fights. That's kind of like, <clears throat> that's, that's sort of a, a, a sizable addition, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah, and I like you know we shot another fifteen minutes or so, but Good I really like the way of doing that. You know, um, it was great fun, and um, we it, it it was sort of responding to the needs, not just the needs of the market. You know, because I, I am an artist, I don't make films for the market, but ultimately you've got to, haven't you? But I, w- I was also responding sort of the, what the film needed and what the edit edit needed, and because we were quite low budget and had you know completely financed by one financier, we sort of had the freedom to do that. You know, and you don't always get that, I suppose, you know. Um, I was going to say, just, I mean, without going into details about pounds, shillings and pence, but like from an investor's point of view, when you're going through that kind of, what what feels like, I mean, it wasn't planned that way, but what ended up being like an iterative process of hmm. show and tell, show and tell kind of thing. Yeah. How how was that, what was there, was that, were they comfortable with this idea it would be eventually the 80 plus minute film? So oh, speak. yeah. Yeah, I mean, there was, you know, there was always a commercial imperative to do that, but they, they trusted us, you know, and um, 
and it didn't cost a lot to go back and do pickups and things. Like I said, we got the location for free. You know, a lot, a lot of the actors are working on um, deferment deals and things like that. So, so actually, um, you know, it, it makes you quite fleet of foot when you you shoot in this way, and I, and I enjoyed that. You know, uh, it was good. Same. So yeah, was that? Was, I'm going to say, was that a lot? To, given you had such a fixed location, single location. Thinking again about your comparison with the kind of don't breathe model is is you didn't. You didn't if, if you'd have, if you'd have shot it in like say I don't know seven or eight different locations, like you yeah. know a cafe here, a house there, a pub there, a playing field somewhere else. That becomes more problematic, doesn't it, when you're trying to piece together additional material. Whereas knowing this film is so contained to your your hangar, as it were, meant yeah. you were basically going back to a familiar place that had been the only place you'd really filmed. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was really useful that it was so contained, you know, and. And also it was quite modular as well. So some of the scenes we shot, we, we were able to just, um, you know, there, there is a scene where she, uh, which we picked up, you know, flat, but we were able to go back to the same flat, you know, and, and things like that. So it was all pretty simple, uh, that kind of thing. So in terms of pragmatics of, of doing that and working in that way, it was good. So, in terms, so in, terms of in terms of filmmaking challenges then for you, um, what what we when you were looking at what was on the page, or maybe when you were getting the feedback on let's have more fight scenes or whatever, what for you is is kind of something that you were kind of go, oh I'm going to do this, and then you got it in the can, you got it in the can as it were. What what would be one of your sort of proudest achievements on on what you managed to get in the can on stalked? Um, oh, the whole film. God. <laughs> well, that goes without saying, Justin. But just thinking of thinking of when you're you're looking you're looking at your your, your schedule of what you're going to be shooting. And yeah. There's obviously there's there's an easy there's the easy shots like here's them talking to each other and having a cup of tea, and then there's yeah. here's this other choreographed armory needed etc cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, so just thinking about it that way, what what would be like your sort of extreme part of the filmmaking that you were kind of I like mean, wow? How the do we the get real that? the real fun bit on this film was doing all the in invisibility stuff, you know. Yeah. And um, there's a moment in the film where she realizes she can um, she can see the character. Got you. Because of the way the suit works and the way the frame rate of the suit is scanned, she can see the character if she if she's filming it. So it's not you can't see it as a naked with a naked human eye, but you can see the suit if you're like filming with your iPhone or something like that. So she she's got a phone with her. The phone has no reception because there's blockers in this military facility, but she can use it as a camera. Right. And she realizes that she can um, uh, she can film him, and that and that gave us the opportunity to do lots of fun in camera tricksy stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, where, for instance, he'd be walking long, she'd be blocking him with the phone. So we're filming the phone's POV, um, you know, think, things like that and smart stuff. And the whole invisibility thing was fun as well. There was this, There's a scene where she's trying to escape and we ended up doing it in one shot and um, on, a, on a steady cam and she gets knocked out and then she gets dragged off by him. You can't see him. So we had to figure out a way of her... Um, being dragged off by him. And one of the good things about Rebecca, and this is one of the reasons we, we picked her as a lead actress, was she's very physical. You know, she's done a lot of physical theatre stuff. She's not done much film and TV, but right. she's done things like motion capture for um, uh, for Lara Croft. You know, she did the motion capture for Lara okay. Croft's video game. So she's <clears throat> she's pretty handy. She's very physical, you know, and athletic. And um, she was able to do fights, um uh, and, and fight with herself. And this scene in particular, you know, where she gets knocked out and dragged off, I, I really like what, what she did with that, you know. Um, it's almost like watching ballet or something, <laughs> various points where she's having fights with 
somebody who isn't there. Yeah, because I can imagine the the idea of acting with yourself as if you're reacting to something that's that's there but isn't physically there is a skill unto itself, isn't it? It is, and you know that it's it's not not every actor can do this because you can look a bit stupid. You know, you can look a bit like a bit of a wally if you're fighting with somebody and they're not there or interacting with somebody who's not there. You know, it's like something audiences pick on. Say, ah, that doesn't look very good. You know. But she managed to sell it. You know, there's a scene, there's a brilliant scene, a scene which had like probably about 40 setups, yeah. which is part filmed on CCTV, part filmed on the phone, part part shot as over there, part from the um, guy wearing the suit's POV because he has a kind of HUD on the suit, a heads up display on the suit, you know, yeah. which kind of shows. And uh, yeah, and that was an incredibly complicated scene to shoot. We had to go back and do a couple of pickups just because of the little things we mixed. And it was mm. a bit of a bit of a head fuck, you know, but it was great, uh, great fun doing it because you felt, oh, I really got to use my brain on this to, to make this work, you know, and um, that was a fun scene as well. And she had to do things like, so he sort of puts her arm up at back, forces her down onto this table. So she was doing all this, we shot it with him in and then we had to take him out and shoot it again with her out, which is how we did a lot of the fights, you know, so we had the fight coordinator would come in, block the action with Rebecca. Yeah. <clears throat> and then <clears throat> we'd take him out and, uh, and she'd have to remember all of all of the moves. So there's one fight scene where she does that. And it's like, you know, when you're doing fight scenes, you do the number of hits. So it's like 20 hits or something like that. And yeah. there's a scene with like 20 hits, which she had to remember <laughs> with and without the other person in there. So, uh, I mean, I really think we lucked out getting her to do it because there's not a lot of actors who could remember that much coordination and that degree of action. Um, and, and, and so give, obviously, and that that's... That's that's almost like mini theatres within 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 the big show, isn't it? Really, in a sense, having to having yeah. to rely on that much performance, um, physical performance at that. Um, how how did you so had you with Rebecca before, or was it was how do you build up the trust with her in what you were trying to achieve and what she was doing that would help achieve that? Well, I think that's just the most important thing on any film, you know, is that trust and getting the actors on side. So, because mm. uh, like you say, nobody wants to look a Wally. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, they've really got to trust you a lot, you know. And uh, and I, I so that's what I try and do these days. I mean, it used to be the most terrifying thing, you know, when I first came out of film. Well, I did a film degree, mm. and came out of film degree, and I was like, oh, well, are you an actor? You know, you don't, you don't know how to talk to them, how to interact with them, you know, uh, as, as a shy young filmmaker. But it's the thing I really love now, you know, because once you, it's the, the real pleasure of making films is getting to know these these people, you know, and like putting your characters into into them is is the most fascinating part so so we met you know uh, we met for about six weeks before shooting and she was in training you know she trained up and ate chicken for breakfast and stuff like that and really threw herself into the role i have to say uh, but we'd meet you know and, and spend morning a morning or an afternoon together just like talking about the character talking talking through the script and um talking through the themes like i said and that was really important in building that sense of trust you know and then by the time you get on set you know, you're, you're mates and you, you've been through a lot together, you know, and um, that is really key. I think on any any film I've done, you know, you're getting to know the actors really well and um, uh, and, and creating an environment where they, you know, a safe environment where they can where they can do that. And, yeah, yeah. Um, so, so in a sense, what what was what do you think it, going through that process of under uh, sort of sharing the understanding of who the character of Sam was? Then when you get on set. What do you think uh, Rebecca was able to bring for you that, that, that surprised you? You thought, yes, this is who Sam is. Yeah. 
yeah, I think it's, she's got a great kind of, um, she takes it seriously. You know, I think some actors, they get into a genre film and they say, oh, I'm doing this, it's sort of hokum, you know, um, I, I, could, I could sort of sleepwalk away through this a little bit, you know. And it was never a factor with her. She always, I always felt like she, she really believed in this character, in this situation, you know, and was able to, to tap into it and, and, and really make it real, you know, and, mm. and find the reality in the situation. Um, which was the most important thing. I mean, also she just threw herself into it. You know, she'd like to say, you know, Sam's not looking dirty enough. The makeup doesn't look right. She's running to the corner of the factory and roll around in the dirt, you know, and, um, Okay, right. You know, there was no sense of uh, glamour or. But, but, but it's, it's, it's a good point you make, though, because I mean, you know, genre fans will be the first to not, to first to spot someone they can see dialing it in, you know, as opposed yeah. to and and we 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 all know because it's suspend, you know, for, for any kind of film, whether it be you know a kitchen sink drama or you know the most cerebral sci-fi film you'll ever see, it's going to be a suspension of disbelief isn't it to make you enjoy yeah. it you have to invest yeah. yourself emotionally in something that might not ever be real but but when yeah. you see when you see actors dialing it in you kind of takes you out of the film whereas if you watch a performance where somebody believes in what's going on because of the way they're performing that's what that's that's doing the job that's helping you do the job of watching the film isn't it that's the whole point yeah. of the actor it is and it sells it sells the situation you know and again it helps with the suspense and the the situation Sam finds herself in because you really believe that she's got to get back to this kid, you know, because it's the most important thing in the world. Yeah, it's like, know, a, it's like a double jeopardy, isn't child. it? She's got, she's got her yeah. own life and then she's got a child that she's left. So she's got the guilt of that. Yeah. Plus, plus there's, the, there's, the, there's the immediate threat. Yeah. And then there's the, the bigger thought is what if I never get out? What's good? Then, so you've got all those, th- all those things add up to that character, don't they? Yeah, yeah. And there are moments in the film, you know, where the, where the film and the dramatic tension of the film really hinges on that, you know, where she has to essentially make make the choice between her own life and that of her child, you know. And mm. it's a situation I suppose a lot of parents ask themselves, you know, is it, it's not a situation you're ever likely to be in, really, you know, in the modern universe, hopefully, thankfully, touch wood, you know. But I feel like um, it's a situation which is something which a lot of parents have asked themselves. And one of the good things about humanity is a lot of parents, I think, would say, yeah, you know, I would sacrifice myself for my child, you know. Well, this is the most, I mean, obviously, that's the, the most dramatic end of that. But I remember reading in a book one time, and it was just the, the character was described as finding the the added amount of adrenaline and energy that only a parent can to save their child. So it's almost like yeah. you became superhuman in about half a second's worth of your life because it yeah. mattered. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and it doesn't. I think that's what she's doing here. You know, and there are moments where... Um, I'll give you later the film away, but there are moments where she really has to do that, you know, where she has to trade with this this guy who is um, stalking with her. Well, let's, her let's, let's, well let's not spoil it. Then. Let's let's let's, no, no, let's no. go. Let's look at the. So, which is the actor who's playing the guy in the suit? Who's who? who... Oh, so this is Lawrence Saunders. Yeah. So Lawrence Saunders is it's the op- now, it, obviously Sam Sam obviously is on camera and doing the action now, yep. directing the role of for somebody who's for all intents and purposes either a POV. Or we can't see, and I'm guessing this because obviously I've not seen the film. How how did you how did you and Lawrence then if you if you spent time with, with Rebecca developing Sam's character, how did you and Lawrence tackle developing what he was doing excuse me, as um as the kind of antagonist of this film? Well first off I wanted to keep them apart. I didn't want them to meet, you know, mm. and because uh, I didn't want them to have any kind of rapport or friendliness between them before they they met because I feel like they had to have this 
this conflict, you know. Mm. And, uh, and Lawrence is, an, is a guy I've known for years, you know, and he's a lovely guy. I actually did a you know a low budget film I produced like years ago on 16 mil in Birmingham uh, in '97 called um, uh, Beach Beach Boys. And uh, Lawrence was in that, you know, so I've known yeah. him since then, like 22 years or so. And he's been in loads of stuff. I've done loads of stuff with him over the years and bits and pieces and done it in all sorts. So, um, so you've got so, that you know, short, we, you've got that shorthand with him did. as to expectations. Which, yeah, which I didn't have to do with Rebecca. And obviously, uh, you know, I didn't have to do as much stuff as I did with Rebecca, with Lawrence. Yeah. But we did have a lot, of, a, a few conversations prior to the shoot. And, and really it was about getting him into the mold of this character, you know, this guy. And we talked a lot about toxic masculinity, you know, and, and, uh, and about Weinstein and, and uh, things like this. Yeah. And um, and the current climate, because essentially that's where this character comes from. You know, he's, he's, he's a weak, weak man. He's, yeah. a, he's a weak little boy, you know, and he, um, he he's trying to exert power. Right. And um, and it's a peculiar thing, is it? Because it seems to be happening a lot. You know, there are a lot of these people out there. It's an angry climate out there. And um, so we had a lot of these these sort of conversations. And then I brought, brought him on and... and um, I like the idea that he's, um, he's he's not one of these, you know, the, the character doesn't, does everything slowly and methodically, you know, he's very OCD, you know, he enjoys this control, he enjoys sort of lording it over these, these young women he's kidnapped. Well, the psychopath um, is always on a plan, aren't they, stroke, real, living out a fantasy, so it has to be yeah. orchestrated, doesn't it, or else it won't live up to expectations, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, so that was the, very much the idea behind this guy, and again... Again, I can't. It's a shame I can't give too much away because it, you know it's like the final reel, really, where it comes out a, a, a bit more of a mystery about who this guy is. No, that's fine. That's fine. I think it's, it's just I'm just fascinated with that idea of a, and it's great because what you're saying is you so you you've chosen an actor who you've worked with, so therefore there's less effort needed in terms of getting them ready because you know how each other work. But equally, you made the conscious decision to say, right, Lawrence and um, and Rebecca, I don't want you to meet. So when you get on set, there'll be your character's animosity between each other. So you can play on that as part of trying yeah. to get, because the camera will see that if they're playing it, um, I suppose is the way, is the way. Whereas if you, like you say, if they've been out for a drink before, they're having to get in the moment of being antagonist and protagonist. Yeah. And drop, yeah. and drop the pretense that they actually have shared a couple yeah. of glasses of Chardonnay before now. Um, yeah, exactly. No, I no, I get what you mean. No, it makes perfect sense. So <laughs> I, I've been listening to a podcast of late by Critic uh, Scott Weinberg, he's that's that one called Science versus Fiction. Now, given oh, you've yeah. you've gone and used the point of science to to in, to sort of start this idea for your film, how much science have you drawn on, and where have you and and where have you allowed yourself to use artistic license of fiction to make to make <laughs> what maybe isn't possible now work for your film? Yeah, I mean, I I don't I don't think my scientific research on this film would. Uh... You know, hold up to uh, Scott Weinberg's sort of level of uh, you know rigor, but uh, I, yeah, no, I think there's a lot of science fiction in there. You know, it was really—I I don't think it's a science fiction film. That's what I should say as well. Yeah. You know, I think it's a—it's um, a device to create a suspense mm. thriller. You know, and um, uh, but I, I, I'm sort of interested in it, but I, I have to say I'm not in the least bit scientific. You know, I completely know how this stuff works. Uh, but um, I, what I was interested in is the um, the fact it's a bit secretive as well, and that sort of fed into the whole idea that it's a bit kind of seedy and voyeuristic. No, so I love really, that. I think that really is yeah. a nice ingredient to the to the whole the bigger idea of your film. Yeah, it was. It was so it's thematically is what interested me in mm. it really, rather than um, 
uh, you know, um, any, any, like I say, exacting um, scientific research and, and rigor. But uh, it, it's, I would say it's uh, not as bad as the just the Daily Mirror book of facts. <laughs> but I, I've done loads of, as Vivian from the Young Ones would have said. But, uh, uh, but it, but you know, it, this stuff is out there. And uh, I like no, to cool. no, just, just it's, it's fascinating because I mean I've done it myself. You know, you kind of take you take you take liberally from what people say can happen. And then you go, okay, if I times it by 10, then it's yeah. just an extension of what reality is, but it might not be achievable just yet. Um, yeah, and I think that's the best sci-fi does that. You know, I think British sci-fi does it really well, you know, and, and um, uh, it, it's just pushing the envelope a little bit, so keeping it in the realms of believability and, uh, and fact, but just pushing it a little bit. And that was a watchword throughout, you know, making the film. So we, we want this to look real, you know, because originally there's a... There's a um, uh, a drone in this like a battle drone we decided earlier on that it should be um cgi yeah. and the first designs we had for this thing the first concepts we had you know it looked like something out of like uh, i don't know like battle of the planets or something like that you know it looked it looked really sci-fi and i said no it's going get rid of all that you know make it look really british and crap like it's just been made in like somebody's backyard or something so that was what we wanted to go for and and it was the same all the way through with um costume design and, and things and the design of the actual suit you know the suit gets seen a lot on um on cctv you know for the aforementioned reasons you can mm. see it on cctv and the idea is i wanted to just make it a shape you know so a black shape so it doesn't look sci-fi it hasn't got any buttons on it or anything like that you know it's just this ominous kind of shape which seemed to suit the um suit the idea that it's very sinister and, and kind of secret you know now we've been we've been we've been pulling back the curtain on what the wizard of oz looks like with the with the way you make this film and i'd be interested to know um when, when you talked about the, the like the, the the 40 pickups where you've got where we end up looking at something through a phone through a cctv through a uh, helmet device the antagonist's point of view which is a, a screening of itself are you is that created with individual cameras or is that created with the same camera and then your your after effects is making it look like cctv footage your after effects is making it look like the display oh uh, we, we did loads of different things yeah so um, some of it filmed on a gopro you know some of it was on like a 5d type camera you know sort yeah. of dslr and some some of it, a lot of it, shot on a black magic for more of the main shoot, you know. Yeah. Um, so there there are a lot of different textures in there, which I think always helps, you know. I'm a big believer in doing that and keeping it in camera, you know. Okay, okay. So so it's a, when you want to get those different effects of of point of views of of sort of cameras we understand, because obviously we've seen we've seen um, umpteen reality TV shows where we see same CCTV footage. We know we know that doesn't look as good as you know Lord of the Rings. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. so you to get that texture, you need a camera that can do that as much as you might play with it after, in After Effects or something. Yeah, we did. I mean, we did do a lot of playing with stuff in, um, you know, After Effects and, um, and, and in the edit. And yeah. I mean, we're still finishing the film off. I should say, you know, we've got the grade final grade next week. Actually, brilliant, brilliant. we're well, still doing the sound. Yeah, cheers. No, sound is really important in this film as well. You know, so we spend a lot of time and effort on the sound. Um, and and that contributes to sort of the different textures and the different layers, you know, mm. so the CC, the buzz of a static CCTV camera, you know, sometimes just the quietness of that can be quite sinister as well and, and underline the fact that some yeah, of I mean, I mean, that's a great, I mean, in a, if you fill a cinema with that noise, 
this is kind of like a, a low sort of drone, low, low sort of drone, isn't it? Really? Yeah. That's really it's yeah. atmospheric without doing anything at all, isn't it? You're just looking and hear. It's almost like hearing the silence, if that makes sense. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And you know the um, the factory is. I mean, it should, shouldn't underestimate the fact the value of the factory in this film because it's an incredible location this place yeah. you know they, they don't make military hardware they make you know, parts for combine harvesters and plows but um but they make it's, it's an incredibly cool looking place and it's got that kind of bass rumble the whole time you know that sinister industrial sound to it which um i, I must mention the music as well because the music we had a great composer on this film mountford who's done loads, loads of sort of um genre feature films like did danny dyer's um vendetta Okay. And uh, he's, a, he's a great composer, you know, and he really got into this industrial sort of vibe. We worked together on that a lot. And, um, and, uh, and How that does really that Because obviously music's a different skill set to directing, but obviously mm. you've got in your mind's eye and your mind's ear even what, what, what it's going to sound like. How does that conversation work between you and the composer as to what... Is it, is, it, is it them seeing and giving you feedback or are you saying, I want this? Or are you just putting a guide track on and saying, make something that sounds like that? Yeah, no, I, I temped up a lot of it, you know. Um, I used a lot of different temp stuff. So I used a lot of the music from Quiet Place because I think the score for Quiet Place is great. You know, it's it quite is, experimental. It's, it's yeah. a great one, yeah. Yeah, so we used a lot of that originally. And then um, uh, we we uh, used um, James Horner, you know, from Aliens as well. Mm. Things like Ripley's Rescue, which will be, a, uh, you know, a lot a lot of uh, geeks out there will be familiar with uh, James Horner's score for Aliens, no doubt. But you know, so I used that to temp it up for him, and um, you know, even down to um, you know, theme from uh, Silence of the Lambs, the opening uh, where Sam's jogging, you know, which is is, is my nod to uh, Silence of the Lambs, which I love again. Again, good, good. Uh, I mentioned that earlier. So, so I gave him some pretty good guidance on the temp, you know, and then we went and worked up together. And he came, we always knew there would we have to be themes, you know, so. Sam's got this theme, you know, and and um, it has got its own theme, and and the baby even has got its own theme. So we worked a, a lot on that and variations of those themes, depending on the situations in the film Sam finds herself in, you know, and, uh, and the characters do. So, uh, but it was a great process. He's got a great composer, you know, and I think with suspense cinema, you know, sound and music are the things which really elevate, you know, and you sort of watch a first cut of the film without, and, and you go, oh. <laughs> but then we. When you watch it with the sound of music, it, it sort of all makes sense all of a sudden. So. No, I mean, it's, it's for me, it's been a, I mean, only a limited experience I've had making short films. It's, um, it's almost like bad sound is where you learn how important the sound is, in a way. You, 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 once you see, because for some reason you, it, your eyes don't like looking at something your ears can't, can't take, can't understand, if that makes sense. So yeah. if there's anything off key or off beat, in terms of sound and vision, your eyes are going, no, no, I'm rejecting yeah. this. Whereas if yeah. obviously, if it's on, if it's on point and it's just, it's, it's, it's then building atmosphere or it's, it's, it's resonating like a, you know, a high heel on stone, even just, just, just echoing is, is often enough to give us, to ground us in the film. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I look, sir, that... let's, um, <laughs> let's remind people about when they can see your film. Right, so it is uh, it's on at Fright Fest on Sunday the 25th of August, bank holiday. If you've got nothing nothing else to do on a bank holiday weekend, I suggest heading down to Fright Fest. Uh, so it's bank holiday Sunday the 25th, and it's at 1pm at the um, uh, Leicester Square UGC, I believe, which used to be the Empire. So um, Yes, no, well, it's still, it still is the Empire, but it's uh, not as it's a city world these days. 
Oh, then, sorry, Cineworld, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but the, so this, I'm guessing if you've not finished, this is a world premiere, yeah? Yeah. And, I, and if anybody out there hasn't been to Fright Fest, it really should, you know, it's great. I've been there, seen some amazing films over the years, you know, uh, Gareth Edwards' Monsters I saw down there, you know, uh, had mates who've had films on there, you know, um, people like Simon Rumley, great genre directors. And it's just a great atmosphere. And it's one, you know, sometimes you go to a film festival and you think, oh, I'm the only person watching this film, but that's not the case at Fright Fest. You really get good atmosphere and good audiences down there. You know, so it's a great place to get down to. No, I mean, I mean, just, just while it's fresh in the memory, yesterday I was speaking to um, Paddy Murphy who did The Perish, and he yeah. recounted a story to me which basically said, if it hadn't been for Joe Lynch, I never would have made this film. He was, yeah. he was, he was there as a punter, and he was talking to uh, Joe Lynch outside the Phoenix, which for regular attendees, the Phoenix is a, a downstairs theatre bar uh, on Charing Cross Road in central London, so not far from Leicester Square. And uh, he was having a chat with him and sort of having this kind of crisis of confidence about, oh, I might give up. And Joe Lynch said, don't give up, mate. Keep on there. And basically, he basically said to me in the podcast, had I not got that advice, this movie would have got made. And you're like, wow, that's... There's there's like a mini a mini soap opera within happening within Fright Fest that didn't even know and then two years later comes a feature film. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think it's great. You know, film festivals so important in instigating this sort of stuff. So yeah, uh, yeah it's an inspirational event. You know, long may it long may it continue. Indeed, it's to the next twenty years. The Britflix podcast is provided absolutely free. If you want to help me get the podcast out to more people, please take a moment to leave a review on iTunes. Or if you want to help me out directly, there's a link in the show notes to my Patreon page. All contributions are welcome. And the music is by Chris Reed of thecomposers.tv. Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.